Episode 24, The Battle of Midway. He stands on the deck of the Kaga, ordering operations. The carrier air patrol has been pushed to its limit. Fighter groups are being switched out. Suddenly, there's a commotion. Everyone is shouting, dive bombers. He looks up and freezes. They are coming in steep, tiny black specks that remind him of a swarm of hornets he was chased by as a child. Evasive maneuvers are called, but the giant carrier turns slowly. The 42,000-ton ship lumbers through the water. The anti-aircraft guns begin to fire. Five-inch shells are hurled into the sky. One of the planes lurches, as if slapped by a giant's hand. Flame and smoke follow it down as it plunges into the sea, but the rest of the bombers continue on. They're so close now, he can see the bombs detach. Watch them grow as they fall, almost make out words scrawled on the sides. It feels as if they are falling directly towards him. The first three bombs miss, but they are close. He watches the chief maintenance officer begin to sprint. He's heading for the command center. Boots hit the lightly armored deck. He's just outside of the crew quarters. Another bomb begins to tumble. There's a flash, a roar, and heat. Such intense heat. The man is gone. The Kaga is on fire. The Americans have struck the first blow this day. Welcome to the Finest Half Hour. Read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. In the centre of the Pacific, about a thousand miles from Hawaii, and 2,200 miles away from Tokyo, there's a tiny archipelago, so small it can barely be seen on most charts of the ocean. The largest island in the chain is smaller than London Airport, and yet it will be the site of one of the most important engagements of the war. These islands are the islands of Midway. So why will such seemingly unimportant islands become the focal point for the greatest clash of naval arms in modern history? Because of one man, Yamamoto, and his desire to force a single massive battle to determine the outcome of the war. Ever since Japan's victory over Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, Japanese naval doctrine had focused on one thing, the idea of Kantai Kesen, the deciding clash, the decisive battle. The theory was that even if Japan could not compete with the United States in an extended struggle, they could enter the war on nearly equal terms and then utilise superiority in training and what translates roughly to warrior spirit to knock the Americans out of the war with a single crushing blow. This idea hinged on two things though. One, that the Americans could be lured into an all-or-nothing battle and two, that the United States would cut its losses and abandon the Pacific after a significant defeat. But the sort of decisive battle he wanted had, so far, eluded Yamamoto. Even though the Japanese had found victory after victory at Pearl Harbor, and in the Java and the Coral Seas, he'd not yet managed to lure the Americans into committing so much of their force to a single battle that a loss would cripple their ability to further contest the Pacific. Moreover, Unbeknownst to him, and perhaps impossible for Japanese naval high command to see due to cultural biases, 
Yamamoto had changed the nature of the war with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. By launching his vaunted surprise attack, he ensured that the clash between Japan and the United States was no mere contest over territory that America might be willing to give up if things looked bad. Instead, he had transformed it into a war of national pride and vengeance. No single loss at sea would convince the American people to give up on avenging Pearl Harbor. But Yamamoto had promised six months of victory, and those six months were almost up. He needed his decisive battle, and decided to force it at the relatively obscure island chain of Midway. April and May 1942, the planning phase. This is Midway Base. Our saltwater evaporators have broken down. Fresh water is low, requesting immediate resupply. Much of the Japanese naval command thought Yamamoto's idea of an attack on Midway was too risky. But Yamamoto argued it was the only option. Midway was close enough to threaten Hawaii. It was the only target within reach that the Americans would be forced to defend. Still, opposition was fierce. Yamamoto threatened to resign over it. Then, on April the 18th, an audacious American raid changed everything. B-25s, daringly launched from carriers in the Pacific, had bombed Tokyo. The populace felt unsafe. Japan's defensive ring had to be expanded. The Midway operation got the green light. But Yamamoto's planning was hamstrung by bad information. In nearly every engagement in the early days of the war, the Japanese suffered from over-reporting, the tendency for reports to significantly exaggerate the damage done to the enemy. This time, the issue was that the Japanese forces in the Coral Sea reported the destruction of both the Lexington and the Yorktown, rather than the Lexington alone. Because of this, Yamamoto believed that the Americans could field a maximum of two carriers in the Pacific, not three. Also, both the Shokaku and the Suikaku returned from the battle much the worse for wear. The Shokaku had been so badly damaged it would be months before it could return to service, so it couldn't possibly participate in the midway operation. The Suikaku had lost a large number of its flight crews, and Japanese air doctrine stated that the aircrew of a carrier needed to train as a unit, not simply be replaced by whichever pilots could be found. So the Suikaku would also be out of action, while a new cadre of airmen could be trained. Meanwhile, the Yorktown crawled back into Pearl Harbor. Damage was so extensive that estimates said repairs might take three months. In what is, to this day, a miraculous feat of industry and engineering, repair crews working around the clock got a seaworthy in 48 hours. Some of the repair crews would sail with the ship and keep working on her right up until the moment of battle to ensure she'd be part of the US fleet. Still, Yamamoto would have four carriers to the Americans' three. Even with some of their technical limitations, like lack of radar, the Japanese would have the advantage. Because Yamamoto's plan gave them the element of surprise. But like many of the Japanese naval plans at the time, 
the Midway operation depended on the execution of an exceptionally complex plan. It involved coordinating one of the largest flotillas ever assembled while crossing thousands of miles of open ocean in radio silence. The main fleet would also be separated into two parts, a forward force of aircraft carriers and a rear force consisting of most of the Navy's battleships and cruisers. The idea was that the slower ships would form a reserve force that would trail behind by several hundred miles and then pounce on the Americans once they'd been lured in to engage the Japanese carriers. And all this had to be coordinated and discussed. Which would have been fine, but the plan also depended on the Americans being caught off guard. And the Americans were reading the Japanese Navy's mail. Unlike at Pearl Harbor, where an incredible amount of message discipline was maintained, the overconfident Japanese Navy became lax and spoke of the Midway Endeavour almost freely. American magic intercepts rapidly assessed the size and composition of Yamamoto's force. They only needed one more piece of the puzzle before they could turn Yamamoto's surprise attack into a surprise of their own. They needed to know where he was going. Nimitz, the commander of the American forces, thought they were heading to Midway, but naval intelligence in DC thought they might be heading for Pearl Harbor or even the US coast. So the magic team laid a trap for the Japanese. A submarine was sent to Midway to tell the base to send out a very special message. They were to radio, in the open, that their water purifier had broken down and they needed a shipment of water sent right away. Sure enough, a few days later, a Japanese message popped up informing Tokyo that the water purifier Admiral Yamamoto's target had broken down. The Americans knew exactly where the Japanese were headed. Immediately, preparations started to be made. Nimitz flew to Midway himself to see the airfield expanded and submarines posted around the island. He also brought in planes from literally every armed service. Navy planes, army planes and even old obsolete marine planes were stationed at Midway as fast as they could be flown there. These reinforcements would put American air power at parity with the Japanese, even though the Japanese could field one more carrier than they could. On the Japanese side, everything started to go wrong right away. A young lieutenant brought a letter to one of the chief air officers in charge of the attack. It was from a friend of his in China. It wished him good luck with the attack on M. Secrecy was blown. Everyone knew about the operation, and everyone probably included the Americans. But he was told it was too late to scrap the operation, and even if the secret had slipped out among the Japanese military, the naval code was uncrackable, and the Americans still didn't know. Then word came that the reconnaissance of Pearl Harbour would be impossible. An American seaplane tender was anchored right where the fleet scout planes were to be secretly refuelled by submarine. They would have no information about the comings and goings from the largest American naval base in the Pacific. Next they found out that the nine submarines which were to screen the advanced strike force were behind schedule. They would not be there in time to support the battle. Finally, 
Reports came in that massive activity was taking place at Midway. There were signs of construction everywhere. Something was up. But these reports didn't reach the whole fleet. They only reached Yamamoto, who was commanding the reserve forces of battleships and cruisers. When Yamamoto suggested they pass the message along to the forward fleet in case they hadn't intercepted it, his officers pushed for continued radio silence, and the message was never sent. And so, the greatest Japanese fleet ever assembled continued to steam for Midway. June the 2nd and 3rd, 1942. The sturdy PBY Catalina had been searching for hours. They knew the Japanese had to be close, but there was a lot of ocean to cover. They were already almost 600 miles from Midway. Then there, it was as if the curtain lifted on the greatest stage in history. A massive flotilla of enemy ships. I've got the main body. The message was received at Midway. B-17s leapt into the air. The sky filled with smoke. Metal lanced the heavens. The B-17s dropped bomb after bomb. Four hits. Or so they thought. The attack did no damage. Every bomb missed. But surprise was gone. Now both sides knew a fight was about to begin. The attack on Midway was the greatest gamble the Japanese Navy could make. It would require more oil than the entire Navy consumed in a year in peacetime. It would require exhausted ships and crew, men that had been continuously on duty for almost a year, vessels that had travelled thousands of miles without inspection, to surprise and destroy what they considered the second strongest fleet in the world. And that's how Yamamoto liked it. He was a gambling man. He'd rather roll the dice on winning the war than sit there and wait while any chance of victory was slowly ground away. But in all his calculations, he never planned on his transport fleet being discovered. Because, you see, the Catalina didn't actually find the main fleet. It found the force of transports and escorts that were sent to conquer Midway itself. This created a dilemma. Yamamoto's sprawling, complex plan had called for two objectives. The defeat of the US Navy and the taking of Midway. The defeat of the Navy was to be the priority, but without the element of surprise, the invasion fleet would be helpless against the aircraft stationed at Midway unless something was done. The commander of the carrier group made a decision. Early on June the 4th, he launched a strike directly against Midway and tried to neutralise the airfield there. If that could be achieved, the invasion could proceed as planned, and then he could turn his full might on the American fleet. June the 4th, 1942. Five-inch guns hammered at the sky. Fighter chased fighter in their mortal dance. Explosions erupted around the ship, but he had thoughts for none of them. He saw only one plane. It was like some demon, trailing flame, smoke pouring out of it. A wounded beast that continued to charge on. It came straight for the bridge. It was so close he could see the bullet holes that raked its structure. He almost thought he could see the pilot's face. In that moment he thought, is this the end? Am I now to die? 
And with that thought came a grudging respect for the American pilot who, as the last act of his life, steered a plane straight for him. On the morning of the 4th, operations began. Every flight deck was a flurry of activity. Fueling, arming, getting planes ready for the flight. In the twilight, just before the dawn, they began to take to the sky, grouping for an attack on Midway. But they're spotted. Patrols from Midway not only detect the incoming attack, but radio in the exact position of two of the enemy carriers. American forces scramble. Let's get these birds in the air. Everything on Midway that can drop a bomb is sent to take out those carriers. Every fighter, no matter how old and decrepit, forms up to defend the airfield. Japanese 108s darken the sky over Midway. The Japanese aircrew get the better of the Americans in the air, mauling Midway's fighter defences. But the Marines manning the anti-aircraft batteries are spot on. 25 Japanese planes are badly damaged or destroyed. Meanwhile, the American strike on the carriers was occurring. Fighting was fierce, but the Americans came in pell-mell and little damage was done. Nao Nagumo, the admiral commanding the Japanese carrier force, could do was wait. Radio silence had to be maintained. He did not know yet how the battle over Midway had gone. And Nagumo was not a decisive man. In fact, he wasn't Yamamoto's first choice to lead the striking force. But seniority was strictly observed in the Japanese navy and having already fought so hard simply to get an attack on Midway approved, he wasn't going to jeopardise it by haggling over the strike force commander. But, without much information to go on, Nagumo was now faced with a critical decision. As per Yamamoto's orders, Nagumo had left half of his planes in reserve to address the situation as it evolved. They had originally been armed with torpedoes in case the American task force was spotted. But, hearing some of the chatter from the fight over Midway, and having just been attacked by planes based on the islands, he ordered them stripped of torpedoes and rearmed with bombs so they could attack the Midway airfields again. But a few minutes later, he got word that an American carrier had been sighted in striking range and reversed his decision, ordering his reserves stripped and rearmed, something that would cost him precious, precious time. His decision would have been easy though, except for one thing, a delayed scout plane. The Japanese scouting pattern was already light. He had too few scouts for too much ocean. But then, critically, one of the scouts from the cruiser Tone was delayed. No one knows why, but for some reason they were 30 minutes late to launch. And that would be the plane that ended up spotting the American fleet. But they didn't spot the whole fleet. Had they launched on time, they would have seen everything, including the Americans launching a massive bomber raid straight for the Japanese carrier fleet. But they didn't. So again, Nagumo hesitated. At this point, things became chaotic for the Japanese. Nagumo can't launch his reserves, because by the time they're rearmed, the planes that he'd sent to attack Midway are coming back in. Between maintaining a combat air patrol to screen the carriers from a potential attack and the delay in rearming, their reserves hadn't been prepped on the deck. So Nagumo is faced with another choice. 
He can either scramble everything he has, which would mean forcing many of the planes that went for Midway to ditch in the ocean as they'd run out of fuel and would have nowhere to land, or wait for them to return before ordering a strike on the American carriers. Nagumo again chooses to wait. The sands in the hourglass are running low. On the American side, things are going very differently. Where Yamamoto was a gambler, Nimitz was a man of calculated risk. He's laid his trap, and now it's time for it to spring. His subordinates on the scene are highly competent. They guess the movements of the Japanese fleet the day before, and position their carriers to be able to fall upon them as soon as their location is confirmed. But American carrier doctrine isn't as rigid or as disciplined as that of the Japanese. So again, American air forces come in piecemeal. First are the torpedo bombers, many of which don't even find the Japanese fleet and fly out to open ocean only to return to their carriers with payloads intact. Those which do find the Japanese arrive without fighter cover. They're absolutely devastated. Not a single torpedo hits. It's a disaster. Next, the dive bombers come in, but they too have been given the wrong coordinates. Their commander then makes a decision. They're going to find those carriers. They begin a box pattern search, even though it means that many of their planes probably won't have enough fuel to make it back to the American ships. At the last moment, they see a destroyer racing north. The call is made. It has to be going towards the action, and they're going to follow it. So the 31 American bombers simply chase its broad white wake. They see two carriers. The order is given to split up and have half the planes go for each target. But all of the planes are heading towards the Kaga, the nearer of the Japanese carriers. The message must not have gotten through. One pilot, Lieutenant Richard Best, notices this and signals his wingmen to follow him. Then they go for the second carrier, the Akagi, by themselves. The main forces pummeled the Kaga. Its defensive screen of Zeros was close to the water, having just dealt with the torpedo bombers and in no position to defend it from planes plummeting from above. Hit after hit lands. One bomb destroys the bridge, killing most of the command staff. One hits the ship's elevator and explodes in the hangar setting off a chain of explosions from ordnance of planes sitting there armed. And one hit right in the middle of the ship, which ignited the gas line. Explosions rip through the ship, fire engulfs her, she is doomed. And the Akagi? The three lone pilots attacking her have one chance. The odds seem impossible, but they drop into their dives. One bomb misses, exploding a few meters to port. A second bomb misses, exploding just to the stern of the ship. Then, Richard Best lands a 1,000-pound bomb right into the center of the ship. It pierces straight through the flight deck and explodes in the upper hangar, where the torpedo bombers that still hadn't been launched were sitting, armed and full of fuel. Explosions cascade through the hangar, the captain orders the magazines flooded. Seawater rushes into the forward magazine, but nothing happens in the aft. 
The American bomb that had fallen right behind the Akagi has broken one of her fire control valves. Fire spreads deeper and deeper into the ship. The Akagi, flagship of the Japanese fleet, is mortally wounded. At almost the same time, a group of dive bombers from the Yorktown arrive, coming in from the north. They see the Soryu and pounce. At least three hits land. Ammunition and fuel that have been stacked on the deck create a firestorm that sweeps over it. And just like that, in a matter of minutes, three Japanese carriers were lost. The last remaining Japanese carrier immediately orders a counterattack. Japanese bombers follow the returning American plane straight to the Yorktown. They fall on the ship, still battered from its encounter in the Coral Sea. Three hits land, a boiler blows. A hole is torn out of her flight deck. The power goes out. But damage control teams patch the deck and get boilers back online. The flag for stricken ship is pulled down and the American flag is hoisted again. Then, a second wave of Japanese bombers come in. Two torpedoes pierce her side. She starts to list. She would struggle on for a few more days, only to be sent to the bottom by a Japanese submarine that had snuck through American lines. At last, the mighty Yorktown would be laid to rest. But the Yorktown would know vengeance before she was sunk. Early in the afternoon, American crews make one more sortie to find the last Japanese carrier, the Hiryu. By 1.30pm she's discovered. By 5pm American dive bombers have caught up with her. Bomb after bomb lands on the foredeck. The whole front of the ship is reduced to a ragged, gaping hole. The Hiryu is doomed. Yamamoto still with the main force of battleships and cruisers, wants to make one last attempt to reverse the battle. He plans a night attack with everything he's got. But remembering Nimitz's maxim of calculated risk, the American commanders take their winnings and disengage. They have no need to fight Yamamoto's surface fleet. And so the corner is turned. In a single day, the Japanese navy has been more than blunted. It's been mauled. Its ability to project offensive power over the Pacific has been severely curtailed. The loss at Midway stands with Trafalgar and Salamis as one of those world-defining moments in naval history. And so, the sun begins to set on the Japanese Empire. Yamamoto had promised six months of victory. It had been six months, almost to the day. And that's it for the first season of The Finest Half Hour. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're taking some time off to write the next episodes. In the meantime, if you could help us by commenting, liking and sharing this series, that would mean a lot, because we're still trying to raise funds to buy more sound effects and schedule more recording studio time. So join us next season as the tide turns. Come with us to places like Kursk, Anzio, and Guadalcanal. Listen as America enters the war in earnest and the full might of the Soviet Union is unleashed. Come back next season to finish the fight. Mm -hmm.